Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound Critical Care provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Ischemic strokes account for approximately 85% of all strokes. Severe strokes constitute the minority of these cases, but are responsible for a majority of disability and mortality associated with strokes. Intensive care management of strokes is focused on reducing complications related to reperfusion treatment and decreasing secondary neurological injury. With the growth of comprehensive stroke programs and neurointensive care units, many of these patients are treated in specialized units dedicated to brain-injured patients. However, a large number of stroke patients are admitted to general medical and surgical ICUs. Today, we will discuss the critical care management of acute ischemic stroke. Our guest is Dr. Sayona John. Dr. John is an associate professor in the Department of Neurological Sciences at Rush Medical College in Chicago. She is a practicing neurointensivist and also serves as the head of the section of critical care neurology and medical director of the Neuroscience Intensive Care Unit and Neuroemergency Transfer Programs at Rush University Medical Center. Her research interests include ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke. It is a great pleasure to have her as our guest today. Sayona, welcome to Critical Matters. Thank you. So I think that a great place to start would be, in general, just maybe give us an introduction, an overview of who are the patients with acute ischemic stroke that need to come to the ICU. And that is a uh, sometimes a tricky question to answer because it depends on what your institution setup is. If you have step-down units, some of the ischemic stroke patients can perhaps go to a step-down unit. But generally speaking, patients with ischemic stroke that have received IV TPA or endovascular therapies and need to be monitored quite closely do generally end up coming into the ICUs for that close monitoring. And, and I think that that would be the vast majority of patients that we see in general and surgical ICUs as well as neurointensive care units. But um, are there any other situations where you would be worried? And I think uh, in terms of potential size of a stroke or other syndromes that might include people you would send to an ICU? Absolutely. So if uh, patients are presenting with large hemispheric strokes or have a high NIH stroke scale, and when I say high NIH stroke scale, I mean patients who are over 10 uh, on the National Institute of Health stroke scale, we like to monitor them closely in the ICU because of the risk of developing cerebral edema and the risk of secondary deterioration. Now, those are for the anterior circulation strokes, which are different from the posterior circulation strokes or the vertebrobasilar system. Posterior circulation strokes have a different set of risk factors that need to be monitored. For instance, their ability to protect their airway, their ability to uh, stay awake. So these are things that will then need for them to be intubated or uh, perhaps undergo other surgical treatments. So these are the patients that we monitor. Excellent. And before we dive in a little bit more into details about specific aspects of the critical care management, you did mention, Sayona, the NIH stroke scale. And I know that a lot of our audience members are not neurologists or not neurocritical care trained. Could you give us a little bit more info in terms of your thoughts of who should really learn how to use this and how we can use it, is it to communicate with our neurology colleagues in a more effective way when we talk about patients? Yes, absolutely. So the NIH stroke scale is the scale that is uh, universally used uh, to assess a stroke syndrome. And uh, it involves the patient's level of alertness, uh, their ability to follow commands, their ability to uh, use language, both speak and understand, as well as their motor sensory and um, cerebellar deficits. Now, using all of these, uh, the NIH stroke scale counts the extent of the neurological involvement uh, for these patients. So 
across the spectrum of ischemic stroke disease process, we do use the NIH stroke scale as a means of communication. This is an easy enough scale to use, and there are online tools available for people to learn how to use the NIH stroke scale. Not everyone needs to be NIH stroke scale certified, unless, of course, you're in a stroke center. But I think it is helpful to use the tool as a method of communication, especially when you're trying to talk about uh, this patient has gotten better or this patient has gotten worse, because even neuro surgeons understand the NIH stroke scale. And I think it's an important point, and we'll definitely link uh, some of these tools in the show notes because I believe that it can very quickly put the whole team on the same page in understanding what what type of patient we are encountering up front or what are the changes that have occurred to this patient if it's somebody who's been admitted already. Correct. So I would like to start with uh, with airway issues. I mean, um, you mentioned some of the, the the reasons why patients with acute ischemic stroke might come to to the ICU. Clearly, in the the gamut of all patients coming to the ICU, usually airway requirements or airway support and hemodynamic support in all diseases are very common reasons. And I think that even though most of the patients we see with stroke don't get uh, intubated in mechanical ventilation. There are some that do, and it might be a reason why these patients might end up in the ICU. Any any comments in general of how you approach the airway in a stroke patient, Sayona? Sure. So patients with large hemispheric strokes, and when I say large hemispheric strokes, I'm talking about internal carotid artery occlusions or middle cerebral artery occlusions, um, or in the case of posterior circulation strokes, a basilar stroke, they all are at a risk for not being able to stay awake and protect their airway. Uh, in the case of the posterior circulation strokes, it's by virtue of the part of the brain that's affected that they are not protecting their airway. So we're constantly monitoring for any concern that these uh, these patients might be aspirating or not being able to maintain adequate oxygenation um, in this kind of a setting. They're also at high risk for aspiration because they cannot cough and clear their secretion. So it is not necessarily a primary respiratory failure that warrants an intubation as much as the fact that there's an impending risk for respiratory failure by virtue of their inability to um, manage their airway. Are there any GCS numbers that might prompt you to intubate sooner rather than later, even if somebody's uh, before they come to the ICU? So the GCS number comes from the Traumatic Brain Injury Foundation guidelines. Uh, as such, for ischemic strokes, uh, they have not devised a GCS. Uh, that triggers an intubation for the TBI, based on the TBI guidelines, it is a GCS of nine or less, though we generally believe that it, when, it, when it gets to a GCS of nine, you're perhaps cutting it really close. So if they start to not really be able to stay awake and you have to stimulate them frequently uh, to keep them awake or to follow commands or whatever uh, it is that you're looking for in a neurological exam, then they're at a high risk and a non-invasive ventilation is not the way to go with these patients. It really is about intubating them. Excellent. And you did mention the risk of aspiration, which is obviously present in a wide variety of stroke patients, even in those who might be wide awake. Could you comment on two specific um, issues that, that I always wonder from your perspective, Sayona, is one, what type of routine evaluation would you do in all patients that you see with stroke for aspiration? And in those who you think had an aspiration event, how do you approach the use of antibiotics if you, do, if you start them and when? Okay. Uh, for patients uh, that come in with an ischemic stroke, the Joint Commission requires, and that's what guides uh, these uh, comprehensive as well as the primary stroke centers, it, the Joint Commission requires that all of these patients have to be evaluated for their swallow, and they cannot be put on any sort of oral diet till they've had uh, either a nursing bedside screening tool evaluation or a formal speech evaluation. And the Joint Commission does monitor these um, and make sure that all of the stroke patients have met uh, appropriate criteria for evaluation as well as for swallowing. So if there's any patient who even remotely shows signs of risk for aspiration, they will get a formal speech evaluation at our center. And I think all of the uh, comprehensive and primary stroke centers function this way as well. 
so if they fail a swallow evaluation, they automatically become a higher risk in our minds for being at risk for aspiration, not necessarily uh, for food, but even for just saliva. If they aspirate to answer your second question, we don't automatically start antibiotics on these patients. I think we follow the aspiration pneumonia guidelines. And if they develop a fever, a consolidation, a white count, then we would consider and put them on antibiotics as a form of treatment as opposed to empirically putting them on antibiotics. And I just wanted you to emphasize that point because I do think that a lot of times I see people with a potential aspiration B start antibiotics too soon. And clearly, I mean, as you mentioned, there are guidelines that suggest that we can observe them and in those who have a more protracted signs of possible infection is when you would start the antibiotics. And uh, regarding the, the evaluation of, of swallowing, I think it's something that is very important for a lot of our listeners who might be embarking in some sort of accreditation journey in their hospitals. And if they don't have these processes in place, these are some of the things that uh, the Joint Commission is gonna look very closely in terms of uh, measures of quality. So something that needs to be thought about. That is correct, yes. So, Yona, uh, any comments or any, any thoughts on once those patients with uh, ischemic stroke uh, get intubated, is there anything uh, that's uh, particular about how you would ventilate them? In general, these patients should not have major, um, let's say, pulmonary requirements, but are there any thoughts that you want to share with us from your perspective? So with regards to the ventilator, there are two kinds of patients that uh, in my world get intubated. One is the patient who has cerebral edema and is decompensating as a result of that. And the second is the patient that cannot protect their airway and is uh, at impending respiratory failure and gets intubated. Uh, and in that case, we're intubating them purely from an airway protection standpoint. If the patient has cerebral edema and we're monitoring them for their need for decompression or their risk for a further deterioration and herniation, those are the kinds of patients that when we intubate, we sedate them and we keep them essentially on full ventilator support because we want to decrease the work that they are putting into um, their just existence at that point, including decreasing the cerebral metabolic rate. Uh, so these patients will either get put on propofol or fentanyl and propofol or versa, depending on how their hemodynamics are doing. And we only lift the sedation ever so often so that we can continue to neurologically assess them. But usually these are also the kinds of circumstances where we've already consulted neurosurgery and discussed the need for a decompression, uh, which is essentially removing bone and be it um, uh, an MCA stroke that needs to have a hemicraniectomy or a posterior circulation stroke like a cerebellar stroke that needs a suboccipital decompression. So once that is done with and we know that the pressure, the elevated intracranial pressure and the cerebral edema has been relieved and or the patient who has a posterior circulation stroke that simply cannot protect their airway, uh, the moment that kind of pressure relieving techniques have been done with, we immediately wean down the ventilator because these are not patients that have, as you pointed out, a primary respiratory problem. These are neurological complications that lead to the respiratory problem. And so we try to put them on pressure support or do daily weaning trials, uh, trying to keep them on the minimal ventilator setting that they need. So as you mentioned, I mean, for the vast majority of patients, it, they won't require support mechanical ventilation. And among those who do, a lot of them should be able to be weaned, hopefully, in a short amount of time as you as you control the, the main issues. But in, in that small subset of patients, and I presume that in those who have a hemocranectomy, and we'll talk more about that a, a little bit um, later, the percent is even higher. Do you have any, any, any uh, indicators that might early on tell you this patient's probably going to require prolonged mechanical ventilation and perhaps a tracheostomy? So again, it comes down to their neurological deficits and, it, and the size of the stroke. If they have a large hemispheric infarction, and it can be left or right uh, side because the left-sided strokes are the ones that do not follow commands, 
the right-sided strokes will. In these patients, if they have continued decreased mental status, even after the hemicraniectomy has been done, then we are a little bit more concerned about doing extubation on these patients, and they perhaps will move on to doing, uh, requiring a tracheostomy. The posterior circulation strokes, especially it, the ones that involve the brainstem, where the patients are quite profoundly affected neurologically, there isn't even an option really for assessing for extubation. It really comes down to minimizing the ventilator requirements and simply moving forward with the tracheostomy because they're going to need a longer time uh, to get better if they're going to do so. Excellent. So the second uh, topic that I think is very common in ICUs in general uh, for being a reason for uh, admission is the need for hemodynamic management with uh, vasoactive drugs and close hemodynamic monitoring. And I think that obviously this is something that has been of much debate and has different facets depending on what exactly is going on with a patient with acute ischemic stroke. But could we maybe start by just uh, uh, reviewing for the audience the, the whole issue of uh, outer regulation of blood pressure, or cerebral blood pressure in ischemic stroke and how it might impact patients? So every patient for the most part, that comes in with an ischemic stroke will have elevated blood pressures. And this has to do with the body trying to perfuse the brain because the pressures intracranially have gone up, even though it's probably compartmentalized, meaning it's just one portion of the brain that needs higher pressure to perfuse it in the setting of an ischemic stroke. So it comes down to whether this patient is a candidate for IVTPA or not. The IVTPA is given to these patients as long as they are coming within four and a half hours of their last known well or symptom onset. And if they are a candidate for IVTPA, then the guidelines state that the blood pressure has to be less than 180 by 105. So if they are running higher, then we will start them um, we can try PRN medications, and if that doesn't work, then we'll start them on a drip to consistently maintain it less than 180 by 105. Post-TPA also, these patients are maintained at that number for the first 24 hours. If and they after, are high, sorry, go ahead. So, sorry, go ahead. I, I was going to ask you if after 24 hours, you become more liberal with that number. That is correct, because we want them to perfuse the brain. Of course, there are other factors that go into it. If they had a vessel occlusion that has been opened up, then their risk of having a hemorrhagic transformation, because now you've opened up a vessel, which, was, which is now feeding into areas of dead tissue, and the risk for converting that into a hemorrhage is also high. So depending on how much of revascularization revascularization you've accomplished, you may want to have tighter blood pressure goals on those patients. For instance, if you have a carotid artery that was occluded and now you opened it up, that's a whole hemisphere of the brain that runs the risk of having a hemorrhagic transformation. So you may uh, choose to go with a blood pressure goal that's less than 160. Of course, we're still talking in terms of systolic blood pressure goals and not necessarily mean arterial pressure goals because all of the guidelines are still talking about systolic blood pressure. Absolutely. And uh, are there any drugs uh, that you and your practice use more frequently? I know that this is not something that's been heavily studied in ischemic stroke, but I'm just curious, I mean, what would be your usual approach? Our usual approach is to go for a calcium channel blocker. And uh, there are a couple of them available in the market. And the reason we prefer the calcium channel blocker is because of the ease of uh, titration and the close blood pressure control that we get with it. You do have the option of using a beta blocker as well, uh, but then you have to monitor for bradycardia along with it. The calcium channel blockers don't necessarily have the same effect as the beta blockers do. Excellent. And uh, you did mention, obviously, that there's an important distinction in terms of whether they're getting uh, intraarterial TPA versus uh, intra, um, venous TPA not reperfusion candidates. In those patients who exceed that window that you mentioned and are not candidates for reperfusion, what would be your regular approach? 
Uh, with regards to blood pressure, for those patients that have not received uh, intravenous TPA or endovascular therapy, we just let them, we just liberalize and let them perfuse their brain. So we will tolerate up to 220 uh, systolic blood pressure and um, or a MAP of 150, uh, again, in the hope that they are trying to perfuse areas that are not yet infarcted. And, and I guess that the only uh, complicating aspect in those cases would be if you felt that there was ongoing acute end organ damage in the heart or something else going on that is complicating the stroke, in which probably you would have to kind of balance that and, and becomes a much, much more difficult. Absolutely right. So it, it is a balance between the heart and the brain. For the first 24 hours, it consistently is just that, because many of these patients that have ischemic strokes will also have some effect uh, on the heart, and uh, assuming that they don't have some sort of an underlying cardiac uh, issue that they are coming in with, many a times you'll see EKG changes, you'll see uh, mild troponin elevations, concern for um, ischemia, cardiac ischemia, that is. So we're taking all of this uh, into account when we're coming up with blood pressure goals. Excellent. Now, there's clearly evidence that shows that the relationship between blood pressure and outcomes is more of a U, right? So very low or very high blood pressures can be associated with worse outcomes in stroke. Are there any uh, cases in which you might need to raise the blood pressure? That is a controversial topic because um, there is really no evidence that shows that raising the blood pressure has truly helped in this kind of a setting. So the only exception we make is patients come in, have a vessel occlusion that has not been um, opened up, and these people have not, uh, or may or may not have received TPA, but TPA gives you a whole set of different blood pressure guidelines. But in those patients where we're concerned that the perfusion is being affected by, by the fact that these patients are not mounting a blood pressure response or the autoregulation is, is impaired for one reason or the other. Uh, we do try to raise the systolic blood pressure by 20 points or so, but you have to monitor these patients very closely because if they don't have a neurological improvement or an, uh, or an increase in the NI8 stroke scale, or should I say a benefit in the NI8 stroke scale by at least two points with your manipulation, then those, those are patients who are not responding to your treatment. So mm -hmm. it is in those patients that improve as a result of your blood pressure augmentation then there's some benefit to keeping them augmented for a period of time. So I uh, think that's an important point, I mean, that you mentioned that A, that we don't have a solid amount of evidence behind this, but B, in those cases which you do think it might work, it, you have to have an objective measure of success to, to continue it, otherwise you're probably not helping the patient. That is correct. Excellent. So you, you did mention earlier uh, the whole um, aspect of revascularizing these patients. And I think it's obviously an area that for many years was limited to uh, intravenous therapies. But over the last five years, there's been a, a wealth of evidence suggesting that we have more tools in our toolkit that might help save, save brain and save patients. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, uh, some of the aspects about both intravenous thrombolytics and endovascular therapies, and then the implications they have for monitoring in the, in the ICU later. Could, could we start, Sayona, with maybe just reviewing for us what are the indications and the window for intravenous thrombolytics and how you usually administer it? Absolutely. So the key thing about IV thrombolytic or IV TPA, which is what we're approved to use uh, in the United States, is knowing the last known well. And we get this wrong all the time because it's not about the patient woke up and had symptoms, so their symptoms must have started when they woke up. It is about when were they last seen normal. And TPA is indicated for up to four and a half hours from the last known well. Now, in the past few years, that window, it used to be only up to three hours. Uh, in the past few years, that window has expanded 
up to four and a half hours, but the time window between three to four and a half hours has some additional exclusions, which includes age greater than 80, a history of a previous stroke, and diabetes or large stroke syndromes, which means that they're coming in with uh, NIH stroke scales that are over 20. Then those become an exclusion for even for the four and a half hour window. But otherwise, up to four and a half hours, these uh, patients are eligible for IV TPA and is the first line of treatment uh, in this kind of a setting because we don't know that skipping TPA and going straight to endovascular therapy has any proven benefits. And I, and I think that I wanted, before you, 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 you go further, I just wanted to make sure that we emphasize for our critical care and emergency medicine colleagues who may see a, a very short window of these patients, that the data in terms of the benefits of early TPA is is not is not controversial. It's something that's been accepted, and that if anything, we probably should be seeking to give more patients TPA in that window, and that uh, we should really be pushing to get it as soon as possible because 4.5 is the the upper limit. But if I was a patient, I would rather get it at one or two hours than at four hours, right? That is correct, because every 30 minutes of delay leads to about 10% decrease in good outcomes. So we want to get this TPA in as quickly as possible, but then it is very important to get a clear story because we also do not want to expose the patient to the risk uh, without knowing clear time windows. So I think that just to emphasize, like you said, it's not when when they woke up or when the first symptom, but really when was the last time that they were seen to be well in their usual baseline? And that can be, I mean, the time zero that really gives us an idea of what's going on. Correct. In, in terms of a, a administration and uh, what are the things that we should worry post-administration in the ICU, how do you usually give TPA? So this is IV TPA. And it is, uh, the dose is uh, 0.9 milligrams per kilogram, up to a max weight of 100, 100 kilograms. Um, and you have to calculate out the dose and 10% of it is given as a bolus. And the remaining is given as an infusion over the next 60 minutes. Excellent. And like you mentioned earlier, these patients invariably will be admitted to a monitor setting in most hospitals that would be an ICU. What are the, the major complications that our audience should be aware of post-TPA? So about 6% of patients can have or can develop an intracranial hemorrhage, which is, of course, the, uh, the biggest concern is developing an intracranial hemorrhage because the risk of mortality, or should I say the mortality rate, goes up significantly in that kind of a setting. So you want to monitor to make sure that they don't have a secondary deterioration. Um, that's really what is being watched very closely in an ICU, which is where uh, knowing the baseline NIH stroke scale and whatever improvement they've had as a result of treatment is well and clearly established so that any deterioration can be quickly captured. So if there's any deterioration, you need to get a STAT CT and make sure that you don't see a hemorrhage because if there is a hemorrhage, it, the TPA has to be reversed up to 24 hours from administration. And that reversal includes giving cryoprecipitate, you have to check coags, you have to check fibrinogen, and you want to get the fibrinogen above 150 as quickly as possible. And the answer to that is to deliver cryo, uh, cryoprecipitate. And ha you have to give at least six to 10 units of cryoprecipitate to get the fibrinogen to where you, you need for it to be. Not that measuring the fibrinogen is the absolute indication about whether patients get reversed with cryo or not, uh, you have to get that cryo in irrespective of, and if you have a fibrinogen level that you can monitor, then this is what you would be looking for. A lot of places also have platelets uh, put into their protocol, uh, but platelets uh, transfusion really is in the setting of these patients having received antiplatelets or are on antiplatelets for some uh, reason prior to them getting TPA, then there's an indication for platelet transfusions as well. The challenge with cryoprecipitate, as we all know, is the fact that you have to get it—you have to get it from the blood bank. It has to be matched and it has to be thawed and then administered. Oftentimes, there are delays associated with it, and these patients do not have time for that delay. 
TXA or tranexamic acid as an alternative or as a bridge to getting the cryopresipitate in is in several of our protocols and uh, these guidelines are available uh, based on the American Stroke Association uh, guidelines for reversal of TPA. So as you mentioned, uh, in 6% of these uh, patients, we might see intracranial hemorrhage. Now, it, not all the, the bleeding that occurs is the same uh, the same severity, right? Are there ways to classify those uh, those um, secondary bleeds in these patients? That is correct. There are ways to classify, and the um, the hemorrhagic transformation it has a scale of uh, hemorrhagic transformation one and two, or a primary hemorrhage one and two. And the distinction is a hemorrhagic transformation can be little little particular areas of blood, in which case it becomes an HD1 or 2. And if there are clumps of blood, it can be, it's a primary hemorrhage 1 or 2. And then, of course, uh, adding that into the NIH stroke scale and looking at the deterioration. So that might dictate also, I mean, uh, your, your therapeutic conduct, if, right? If you see a hemorrhagic transformation within the 24 hours, that is an indication for reversal. Okay. And uh, in, in terms of monitoring these patients with an NIH uh, scale stroke, how often do you do them in your unit? So for um, post-TPA patients, there's a whole algorithm. Uh, it has to be, uh, there has to be neuro assessment in the beginning every 15 minutes, then moving on to uh, every uh, hour, and then ultimately moving on to every six hours. And that is that occurs within the first 24 hours. Uh, with regards to what happens after that, then there's an NIH stroke scale that's documented every shift by our nursing. Um, of course, any change in the NIH stroke scale will be addressed immediately. I mean, as in worsening, not improvement. And just to clarify um, uh, for myself, uh, Sayona, so the 6% number is all hemorrhages, right? But that is you clearly have made a distinction in terms of we, we have to be much more aggressive if the hemorrhage occurs in the first 24 hours. That so is I presume correct. that there are many that might occur days later, is that correct? That is correct. So you can have delayed hemorrhagic transformation, and this um, usually is 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 because of reperfusion and the breakdown of blood-brain barrier. And not that I want to get all scientific about it, but patients can develop delayed hemorrhagic transformation as well. You don't treat them the same way that you do um, for the first 24 hours after TPA. Uh, in the delayed hemorrhagic transformation, if they are small little particular hemorrhage and these patients are on antiplatelets, we don't usually stop the antiplatelets because of the risk benefit for secondary stroke. Excuse me. But if they have large hemorrhages, then you do have to hold whatever it is that you're using for secondary prophylaxis till you make sure they are stable. Excellent. And I think it's important to know because that might be the patient who might be get a routine follow-up CT scan and you find this petechia and what do you do a lot of times? Obviously, you're working with, with neurology team and neurochemical care teams, but I think for our for our audiences to, so they're aware that in those cases of delayed findings that are, that are minor, you might not change your therapy at that point. Just keep monitoring. That is correct. Now, you mentioned antiplatelet therapy, and I think it's an important, I mean, thing to clarify because that is something that has been studied. And I think uh, in most places that do a lot of TPA, it's not a problem, but people who might not see these very frequently, what, what is your, your attitude toward antiplatelet therapy post-TPA? You did mention that usually you hold them for 24 hours. Is that, is that always the case? That is always the case, unless there is some uh, clear indication. Uh, and again, this starts to get into the complexity of stroke, uh, acute stroke management, because uh, on the occasion, a patient might need a carotid stent placed because that's the only way to access the, um, the occluded vessel. And in those cases, we might have these patients on a... Uh, antiplatelets up front because you want to protect the stent. They are at a much higher risk for hemorrhagic transformation and you monitor them very closely. But that being a separate case, in for most patients, we start antiplatelets uh, within tw uh, 24 hours post-TPA once we have a stability CT that shows that you know there is no hemorrhagic transformation or the hemorrhagic transformation is minimal and the risk for the patient is also minimal in starting at antiplatelets now if these are patients that are already on uh, some sort of an antiplatelet generally our go-to is aspirin and 300 milligrams is the studied dose for the most part 
uh, we put our patients on 325 of aspirin. Uh, there are certain indications for dual, dual antiplatelets, but uh, those are usually uh, if there's concern for carotid disease and you're planning to treat that for, at some other rate, uh, some other point, should I say. Um, or if it's a TIA and there's a high, so uh, the, the nuances of the dual antiplatelets, uh, I think, are perhaps a little beyond what we can talk about. The general answer is to put them on an aspirin 325, either uh, give it orally or give it rectally, but they have to get that aspirin within 24 hours of TPA. Excellent. And uh, the other complication that I have never seen, which just speaks probably to the number of patients I've cared for with TPA not being high enough, is uh, the angioedema that might be associated with TPA. Could you comment on that, Sayona, and how you would manage it? Uh, so, um, just like you, I haven't seen it that frequently either. Um, I've seen two patients and they had, it was um, the lip and well, the tongue that got swollen. So, we treat it like any other angioedema, uh, give Benadryl, give steroids, um, and usually it, they respond to that. Okay, excellent. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about endovascular therapies? This is something obviously that in the last five or more years has really exploded. And uh, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are getting exposed to it uh, uh, very recently. But if you could just give us a brief overview and then what are the implications for care in the ICU? Absolutely. So about 20 to 30 percent of ischemic strokes are related to large vessel occlusions. And that is the catchphrase here large vessel occlusions. And when we say large vessel occlusions, we mean either the internal carotid artery or the middle cerebral artery, and of course, the basilar artery. So the advances in endovascular therapy in the, in the past couple of uh, years, several studies have come out that have shown much better outcomes in patients who undergo endovascular therapy to open up these vessels. And what needs to happen in these kinds of situations is that they get TPA if they're within that window, and then they get some sort of vascular imaging that shows you that there is large vessel occlusion. Now, for the anterior circulation, and by that in the middle cerebral artery, the time window for treatment has generally been up to six hours, except now we've started to extend that window up to 24 hours in certain cases. Uh, but then we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, in your patient that comes in within that window for that uh, IVTPA, they get some sort of vascular imaging, usually a CT angiogram that shows the large vessel occlusion and they go in for endovascular therapy. Now, endovascular therapy really has advanced in that stent retrievers are being used to just suck out the clot as quickly as possible because the timing of this matters as well. And comprehensive stroke centers are really being monitored very closely uh, about how much time they're taking to get the patient in and to get the vessel opened up. So that is just standard of care now. For those patients that are coming in beyond the six hour window, there has to be additional ways of evaluating them for endovascular therapy. And that's where perfusion studies are coming in. Some places look at CT scans and there are ways to score the um, infarct volume. And it's uh, the score that is used is called the aspect score. And based on the aspect score, uh, you can uh, make a decision on endovascular therapy for large vessel occlusion or looking at a diffusion-perfusion mismatch, which is an MR-based protocol where the diffusion tells you how much of the stroke has already occurred and the perfusion gives you the area that's still at risk. And if there's a mismatch, you can go in and open up those vessels as well. Excellent. And in terms of a care post a post-endovascular therapy, is there a difference in, in patients who don't get TPA versus those that only get endovascular or those who get both? Um, a difference in um, in care post-treatment? Yeah. Is that and your question? That you, yeah, and the things that you would do in the ICU. It comes down to the size of the stroke. And even if they have opened the vessel up, if it is a large stroke in evolution, then their risk for cerebral edema and their risk for hemorrhagic transformation is much higher. 
and that is what we would be monitoring for closely. So it's really important to know what that baseline was and what kind of treatment they've undergone. Okay, so again, I think, again, very important for us to be able to monitor objectively if there's any changes, and that's where I think for the non-neurologist, having familiarity with the uh, NIH code can be a great way of transmitting that information to the endovascular team, neurosurgical team, neurocritical care team as well. We're helping them with those patients. Correct. So you mentioned cerebral edema, which is obviously the, the other big complication we worry about. We did talk about uh, hemorrhagic conversions, but uh, why don't we talk a little bit about cerebral edema, Sayona, and just uh, maybe give us an overview of what are some of the general interventions that you can do in terms of uh, trying to uh, give good critical care hygiene to these patients to prevent edema or minimize it. And then as they develop edema, what are the more aggressive interventions, both pharmacologically and maybe surgically, that you might implement and when? Sure. So patients coming in with large hemispheric infarctions, and that means they have taken out a significant portion of their MCA distribution, or in the case of posterior circulation, that would be the uh, pica or the posterior inferior cerebellar artery or the superior cerebellar artery strokes. These are the patients that are at the highest risk for developing secondary cerebral edema and herniation syndromes. So up front, uh, when you look at the imaging, uh, or as a non-neurologist case, when you're looking or uh, reading the reports on CT scans, you usually know who are the patients that have had big strokes. And if more than 50% of a vascular distribution in the case of MCA is involved, then their risk for secondary cerebral edema and deterioration is pretty high. So these are patients that you would probably have to do serial CT scans on. We usually do them um, uh, perhaps every 24 hours or so, unless something changes in between and they start to become really drowsy, uh, in which case uh, that in itself would be an indication to uh, send them for some sort of more definitive treatment, surgical treatment. We're always working in conjunction with our neurosurgeons. So any patient that we are concerned is at high risk for deterioration, our neurosurgeons are following them along with us. Us. Um, the, the hemicraniectomy trials have all shown that if you're going to do a hemicraniectomy, you want to do it within 48 hours. That's generally most places, uh, that's the guidelines that most practices uh, maintain. And if the patient deteriorates, um, as in have uh, not be that awake, should I say, then that would be an indication to go ahead and decompress these patients. Now, when I say decompression, what it means is uh, a portion of the skull is taken out and it has to be large enough that the brain can be allowed to swell outward as opposed to inward. They also have to do a dura uh, uh, to remove the dura, should I say, so that the brain is allowed to swell outward because just removing the bone alone is not going to help the patient. The same goes for cerebellar strokes. Um, they are at a high risk for uh, causing compression of the brainstem and uh, the bone is taken out. It's a suboccipital decompression and again, permitting the brain to herniate outward as opposed to inward. So, Sayona, I know that a lot of the studies that have evaluated a decompression via surgery, hemocrinectomy, have the, found a big difference in terms of age, in terms of outcomes. And uh, most of the studies that I have read, I mean, have a cutoff of 60 years. Now, uh, uh, could you talk a little bit about the decision process and what are the risks of doing a hemocrinectomy in somebody who's maybe older or might have a worse outcome? Yes. So uh, that's a significant increase in favorable outcomes for patients younger than 60 who undergo a uh, decompressive uh, craniectomy, hemicraniectomy. Uh, the, what the studies have not been able to show is improved functional outcomes. And this gets worse uh, if you're older than the age of 60. So generally, anyone older than 60 doing decompression on them is controversial because what it really comes down to is it improves mortality, but but these patients are usually left with severe disability. So in these patients, the risk is survival with no, no potential for ever recovering neurologically, correct? That is correct. So these are discussions that we have with families. And of course, any surgical indication for ischemic stroke 
has to take the whole patient into consideration. It, what else do they have going on? If their mortality or, or their risk for mortality in, those, in six months is high because they have metastatic cancer or they have um, a poor cardiac function or, or multiple factors that are going into the making of the ischemic stroke, the ischemic stroke at the end of the day is just the end result of everything else that's going on with them. So if in combination, they make poor medical candidates for surgery, then truly even the mortality benefit is a very short-term mortality benefit. So these are discussions that have to be had uh, with the family about um, what to expect at the end of the surgery. Excellent. And obviously the, the surgical option or hemicronectomy is a more definitive and aggressive type of therapy that, that you said, I mean, in the right patient when done within the first 48 hours can really make a difference and is something that I, I think should be considered and offered. But could you share with us your pharmacological approach to managing uh, edema or increases in intracranial pressure with the mannitol or hypertonic saline? How do you use them when you use one versus the other and how you, you follow it? Absolutely. So uh, with regards to treatment of cerebral edema, the um, Practice is not really any different for ischemic stroke versus any other um, increased intracranial reason for in increased intracranial pressure in the ICU. We pull either mannitol or we pull hypertonic saline. Uh, there's uh, generally it's easier to get to the mannitol than it is to the hypertonic saline because if you're using 23.4%, which is what we use generally as a bolus dose for hypertonic saline, you do need a central line in order to administer it. It cannot be given peripherally just because of how caustic it is to the vein. So it's just easier to pull mannitol. But if you're using mannitol, a couple of things that have to be kept um, in mind. You want to dose it appropriately. So at a minimum, the dose has to be one gram per kilogram. And along with dosing it at that rate, you are going to run into a massive uh, loss of volume because it is hyperosmolar, it pulls volume, and it causes you to have massive diuresis. So it's very important to keep an eye on the urine output and to make sure that you're repleting volume as you're giving the mannitol using something that is uh, isoosmolar or hyperosmolar because you're not trying to decrease the osmolarity but rather trying to get them hyperosmolar, which the mannitol in itself will do. Now, some of the other challenges with mannitol is that if you have a patient who has um, poor renal function or is end-stage renal, there's a first-pass effect, which is a rheologic effect, which means it kind of makes the RBC slippery and it lets uh, perfusion occur as a result, but you're not going to get the effective diuresis that goes with it, and it just kind of stays around and, uh, and causes further complications as a result of it. So you're kind of limited in your ability to use mannitol in those kinds of patients. Now, hypertonic saline, of course, there are different, uh, um, what is the word that I'm looking for? Different co concentrations of it. You can, it, it comes anywhere from 2% to 23.4, 23.4 being the most concentrated of it. And that's what we're pulling in the setting of somebody who is deteriorating as a result of cerebral edema. And as I said, it has to be given using a central line and it's 30 cc's, which is kind of slowly pushed over 10 minutes. Um, you, can, you can even give it in five minutes. That's uh, not a problem. But usually somebody has to stand there and administer it. And it does not come with the same level of of massive diuresis that you get with mannitol and is very effective. The difference between the two is mannitol uh, acts a little bit more rapidly than hypertonic saline does, 20 minutes versus 30. However, the effect of hypertonic saline lasts longer, uh, four to six hours, as opposed to just under four hours for mannitol. So both of those would be temporizing measures, and I guess in many patients, as you're bridging to a hemicronectomy or more definitive therapy. Correct. Are there any other issues that you might consider? I mean, I have read that some neurointensivists might prefer to use um, subclavian or other types of lines over IJs in patients who have a high, very high risk of having significant edema, uh, keeping the bed elevated. Are those things that you routinely uh, worry about? 
the head of the bed being at um, at least 30 degrees is something that we always worry about and also keeping the head straight so that you're not uh, obstructing obstructing your jugular venous flow that is something we worry about uh, in in terms of is one central line better than the other central line? Uh, in my practice, at least, we just go with the general critical care guidelines. I mean, if we can actually put in a subclavian, we'll put in a subclavian, but if IJ is what we're quickly going to get to, or if the femoral is what we're quickly going to get to, in the interest of getting things going for the patient, then we just do what's uh, optimal at that point. Makes sense. And uh, um, the other thing I wanted to ask you, uh, which is a different category, you did mention them a couple of times, but uh, posterior circulation strokes obviously are very, very challenging. I think that for the non-neurologist, uh, you can be fooled multiple times. I remember very precisely a case that was presented to me as a cardiac arrest ended up being a posterior strokes, uh, um, a posterior circulation stroke. So if you can maybe tell us a little bit about how how to how to suspect these? How to think about these? And what are maybe some differences in the treatment and monitoring of patients who have a posterior or basilar artery stroke? I agree with you. Basilar strokes are missed all the time because the patients can come in with very subtle findings, and you may never realize that that's what you're looking at. It may be just vertigo and vomiting, and the CT doesn't have to show you anything up front. Uh, however, many a times you can uh, see what's known as a hyperdense uh, basilar sign, which is the basilar looking much more prominent than it should in somebody who hasn't gotten any sort of contrast, and uh, they will have subtle clinical signs, perhaps an astagmus, perhaps some ataxia, and they may look good up front and then quickly and rapidly deteriorate on you. As in your case, it ended up being a cardiac arrest because they quickly lose their airway, they quickly lose their ability to maintain their blood pressure, and uh, here you are in the setting of a cardiac arrest. So it's it's very important to do the subtle nuances of a posterior circulation exam. Um, and, and I understand that it's not everyone who can um, suspect or even see it. In case of any doubt, just get a CT angiogram, and at a minimum, you will be able to see what vessel is occluded, and there are treatment options available. For basilar strokes, our window for doing endovascular therapy is, uh, is actually a much longer than uh, in anterior circulation strokes. Uh, mostly because of the fact that these patients are going to do so poorly if something isn't done for them. So if there's any opportunity to establish revascularization in these patients and give them a chance to recover, at least to some extent, then we will offer it. Uh, many institutions maintain up to 12 hours in our institutions. In our institution, we may actually uh, go beyond that, especially if the MRI is not really showing that much in the way of stroke, but the risk is high. Yeah, and I think that's an important uh, point because uh, if you have a suspected or established posterior circulation stroke, no matter what the time is, you probably should get your neuro colleagues involved as soon as possible because even though you might think they're out of window, there might be options for that patient that go beyond what we usually think of. That is correct. So I wanted to ask you, uh, Sajana, about some additional critical care considerations in these stroke patients. We did talk about antiplatelet therapy. Uh, you did mention that um, for most patients, it's going to be aspirin and usually start at 24 hours after TPA. They got TPA. Uh, we're not going to dive into the maybe the specifics or when you use dual antiplatelet therapy. But I did want to clarify something that I think a lot of people still get confused, and it's the role and place for anticoagulation with heparin or similar drugs in stroke? Yes. So the role for anticoagulation is actually very limited. And the real indication is just cardiac. If this is a patient who's, when you, uh, the stroke workup shows that it really is uh, the only risk factor here is atrial fibrillation, or if they have uh, a low EF and you're, you're perhaps seeing an LB thrombus, or they have DVTs, and, it, and it's, this is generally in younger patients, um, they have a PFO, um, or 
this is somebody who's hypercoagulable as a result of some sort of an underlying disorder that's causing them to be hypercoagulable. These are the only indication for anticoagulation in patients presenting with ischemic stroke. The challenge with anticoagulation in these patients is that if they have come in with a stroke and the stroke is big, even if you did nothing, they run a risk for hemorrhagic transformation. So now putting them on an, on an anticoagulant that definitely increases their risk for having hemorrhagic transformation, then what is the timing for that? And that comes down to, again, what is the risk factor? How high is their risk for having another stroke as a result of which? And how big is their stroke? And can they safely be anticoagulated sooner rather than later? Excellent, I think that's an important point. And uh, like you said, I mean, it's uh, not something that is uh, driven by the neuro presentation, but mostly by cardiac risk factors. But the timing probably is a conversation that needs to happen uh, within a team of neurocardiology and the critical care team caring for that patient. So I just wanted to make sure that we had that for our audience. The second aspect that I wanted to ask you about, Sayona, in this bucket was uh, temperature management. I know that, I mean, there's been a lot of studies of... Uh, hypothermia or target temperature management in uh, neuro injury, including strokes, but what's the current evidence or what would be the current recommendations for managing temperature in patients post-acute ischemic stroke? So we know that fever is not good for the brain. And the reason it's not good for the brain is it increases the cerebral metabolism. So we want to control the fever so that the brain can start to recover and heal from whatever process is going on. So across the board, any brain injury, we treat the fever. And it isn't as much uh, an issue with hypothermia as it is with normothermia. So what we're looking to do is to prevent fever. And while we're trying to get to the bottom of why they have fever. And as you know, uh, many neuroinjured patients will have fever just by virtue of the brain injury and not necessarily a whole lot more than that. So our goal in these patients is to try to keep them normal uh, thermic. And we will utilize things like round the clock Tylenol or cooling devices, including both external as well as internal cooling, though the cooling catheters are, uh, generally speaking, preferred for uh, hypothermia as opposed to normothermia, though it depends on the institution. The goal is to, is to keep them euthermic as much as possible and do whatever you need to while the brain is recovering. Excellent. And what about glucose control? Where, where do you stand these days? I know this has been kind of like a swinging pendulum in the ICU from very intensive glucose control to a little bit more lax to making sure we don't cause hypoglycemia. But clearly, I mean, hyperglycemia has also been associated with brain injury. Correct. So hyperglycemia and hypoglycemia needs to be avoided. Hypoglycemia that you're seeing uh, in systemically actually has a bigger impact on the brain because if you if for those studies that have looked at brain glucose, uh, the brain glucose is actually much lower than the systemic glucose in the setting of hypoglycemia. So if I were to uh, shuffle between which one is worse, I would say the hypoglycemia is worse. So a recent trial just got published, the SHINE trial, and they really looked at the effect of hyper and hypoglycemia in patients uh, presenting with brain injury ischemic strokes, and it, both were found to be equally bad. So the goal then is, uh, at least in our ICU, what we do is uh, we consider up to 180 to be normal, and uh, we treat uh, but we treat with, again, titratable agents. So we actually have IV glucose as opposed to subcutaneous glucose, uh, sorry, should I say insulin, not glucose, uh, to manage hyperglycemia. And we do manage it tightly between 120 and 180 uh, with much less tolerance to the blood glucose dropping below 120, um, you know, blood glucose of 200 or 220. We can, we can, we can manage that. And the last question I had in terms of just general ICU considerations relates to early mobility, Sanoya. Mm -hmm. I know that in the ICU with the A to F bundles, there's been a big push for early mobility, getting people up and walking even on ventilators. I did find or I have I recall reading one paper that maybe showed that in stroke, 
there might be some limits of how early you want to go. Any comments in terms of what's the current practice and what the research is pointing out in that direction? So we were the only neuro unit to participate in the uh, ABCDF trial. And we also very strongly believe in early uh, mobility. So the way we have it written in our protocol is, as long as they're out of the TPA window, if they have received TPA and they're out of that risk, or if they have not received TPA or any sort of therapy, then within six hours, we try to mobilize our patients. So early mobility in that regard is good for these patients uh, to get them going and also to get a true sense for what their deficits are. So I think that's important. So just the only patients that you wouldn't maybe push is those who are post-TPA window. You would watch 24 hours, let them get out of that window, and then you would continue doing the things that you would do for everybody else. But otherwise, you do believe, I mean, that early mobility, like all ICU patients, probably has benefits for these patients as well. That is correct. Excellent. Well, we could continue, I mean, talking about I mean, many of these topics, but I also want to be very respectful for your time. And I, I did want to end with a couple of questions that are unrelated to the topic, if that's okay. Yes, absolutely. So the first question relates to books. And I would like to, to know, I mean, if there's one book or, or, or series of books that you have gifted most to others or that has influenced you the most. So uh, the book that has influenced me the most is something that I read rather recently, and it's The 100 Days of Abraham Lincoln's Presidency. Uh, I was asked to read it as part of a leadership training program that I was in, and um, I, I truly did not expect to enjoy reading this book because I'm not into history. But this was perhaps the most amazing book I have read. It truly talked about a person that is uh, had no real leadership skills and used his own intellect to understand how to manage a situation as the president. And I would highly recommend this book to anyone who's interested in reading. So I have not read it, but I'm already intrigued. And the first thing that comes to mind, Sayona, which is very interesting, is when you think of Abraham Lincoln, you, you obviously think of the tremendous impact that he's had on our country and uh, on, on, on many, many, many things. But I never thought that that was done in only 100 days. Yes, <laughs> he did. That's the person that strikes me. <laughs> that is correct. Wow. So I definitely will link that book, and it sounds like a fascinating uh, read. I do think that uh, I have uh, definitely seen uh, stories or, or case studies of Abraham Lincoln in terms of leadership, in terms of uh, also um, what people call like a balanced approach, uh, focus on what's important, not what's urgent. And clearly, I think that uh, uh, this sounds like a book that a lot of our listeners will, will enjoy, and I, I will put it there. Thanks for, for sharing that with us. Absolutely. The second question uh, relates to something you believe to be true that many other people don't believe to be true or don't act like it's true, either in medicine or in life. So I'm going to sound a bit cliched. Um, and I don't know if people believe it or not, but I think medicine is um, actually an art uh, that takes science into account because I take care of patients with the same disease process just about every day. And I have come to realize that just because they have the same disease process that these two, two patients are not the same. And how do you then individualize care uh, for these patients? And it really comes down to taking the science and converting it into that specific medicine for that specific patient. And I think that's a great point. And we have discussed a similar points uh, to this with other guests. And I think it also applies to this drive for protocolized care, which I think has a lot of benefits, but protocols may help us eliminate unwanted or unneeded varia variation. But like you said, there are variations that patients require because of their unique aspect that we as clinicians and maybe that's the art of it, have to identify and provide to them. Correct. So the last question or the closing question would be just, is there a, what would you want every intensivist or, and listener listening to us today to know? 
So I'm not going to give you a popular answer, but I'm a neurologist, and I think everybody needs to know how to do a neuro exam. It is heavily underrated and definitely not well um, taught. The ability to do a quick, and it doesn't have to take more than two minutes, neuro exam is critical in the care of any patient anywhere. And that's what I would want every intensivist to know. And I think that's a great, a, a great um, recommendation and something for people to, to work on because, like you said, I mean, it can make a real difference in identifying issues and making diagnoses. And I think that, especially in the ICU, we tend to listen to the heart, listen to the lungs, but we're also monitoring those in so many ways. And I think that the two areas that I have um, over the years seen uh, neglected are a good abdominal exam in somebody who's intubated and sedated and a good neuro exam in somebody who's in the ICU. So clearly, I think it's a great thing for our audience to work on. Absolutely. Sayona, so, it was really a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us and giving us your, your time in such a generous way. I hope that I can have you back soon and maybe talk about other aspects of neuro critical care and a brain injury. But again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me and I look forward to doing more sessions with you. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound critical care is transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.